Hey friends, and welcome to the Modern Medusa Podcast. friends. Welcome back to the Modern Medusa podcast. This is your host, Dominique DeFalco of DeFalco Reptiles. Super excited for today's guest. It's going to be, I think, a really cool conversation that is another professional who works with reptiles full-time, but in a very different capacity. So today I'll be speaking with Ashley Dazan of Solar Flare Reptiles and Northern Lights Reptile Imports. Can't wait to learn more about her, about what she does and the importing process. And uh, yeah, I think it's going to be really fun and we're going to talk about some really cool things. So hello, Ashley. How are you? Pretty good. How are you? I am good. Okay. So I want to like get it off the bat because I was very confused for the first few minutes we were chatting of that rumbling in the background. Can you please explain what that noise is we might be hearing? Yeah. So the, the, our little scratching noise is currently a tortoise half in the water bowl, scratching at it and biting at the edges, apparently. So nice. It yeah. is reptile stuff, you know. <laughs> yeah, of course. Everyone's like, turtles and tortoises are so quiet. Yeah, until you start to record a podcast. Of course, right? Yep. <laughs> well, Ashley, I'm super excited to chat with you. It's been months in the making of us trying to get on each other's calendars. So really yeah. appreciate your flexibility. Hey, no problem. Happy to be here. Good. I'm glad. So for people who don't know you, can you give me like a, just like the quick, who is Ashley, a little bit of your background, and then we'll kind of get more into your story. Yeah, for sure. So just a quick briefing. I own Northern Lights Reptile Imports, which is what people mostly know me for and as. I don't import the common stuff if I could honestly avoid it. Uh, I like to promote good keeping, diversity in keeping in terms of species, and just like the overall knowledge and learning of the reptile hobby and everything we do. And I like to advance in our knowledge. So with the species I keep are all oddball colubrids for the most part. And I, I love keeping naturalistic and just learning from that. I'm just a self-nerd when it comes to reptile keeping. And it really actually, it started with frogs. Like I never kept frogs, but really? I was a kid that, you know, go chase those frogs. And yeah, that's such and, a quick rental. And you're from Canada, correct? Yes. That's, that's a whole other story. Oh, <laughs> you want to <laughs> <Mostly>, elaborate? <laughs> yes. I was born in Quebec, which is the French part of Canada. Mm-hmm. I don't speak French at all. FYI. <laughs> so when I was four, I ended up moving to the States. I was in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And then when I was 13, I think I moved back to Quebec. I finished high school there in an English school. And then I realized, well, I can't do anything because I don't speak French. can't get a job. I moved to Ontario just on a whim overnight. I had no idea where I was moving to. I just Gosh. took my PVCs, asked a friend to drive me down, and I honestly thought I was going to die because yeah. <laughs> I had no idea where I was going or moving in with. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and then here we are today, roughly 12 years later. Wow, that's awesome. So you talked about that you mostly keep rarer species, specifically colubrids, and that you mostly import rarer species as well. But I'm assuming that's not how it started. So you said that you you know, were the kid that liked frogs and stuff. Where did you really get your interest in reptiles? Then when did you start to keep them yourself? So it all started, the earliest memory is 
on my dad's property where there was a pond. And I thought it'd be cool and big and bad of me to go try to catch some frogs. Waiting in the pond, trying to catch the frogs. And then it jumped and it scared me and I fell in the water. (laughs) We've all been there. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't know exactly where it came from, but I have that typical story of I was fascinated by dinosaurs. That was my thing, learning all the Latin names of dinosaurs because I'm nerdy that way, I guess, even from when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And I always went to the museums and try to educate my parents on the dinosaurs. Um, when I was eight is when I fr- got my first herp, which was a firebelly newt. And, you know, a typical kid, they don't really know what to do with an amphibian. So, yeah. Every day I had it out playing with it, you know. Oh, nice. Yeah, so good hey, for it. It survived. <laughs> it lived for a few years, so I'll take that as a win. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I wasn't allowed to keep snakes, so because they're scary and whatever. Uh, it is what it is. But every summer, this is when I was living in Quebec, like my dad was on a farm and I'd go to like a junkyard area where all the old tractors and stuff went to die, basically. And there was a bunch of ditches and oh, they're basically vernal pools they are just there for a part of the year. Yeah. And I would have a, a notebook with me of frog silhouettes. And I, every time I found a frog, I would write down the size, the pattern, the color, species. And I'd see how many times I could find it every year. Oh, and cool. There was times where I found like paradox, uh, exanthic bullfrogs and then mm-hmm. full exanthics. And it was, it was actually really cool. So that's what I did for a few years and I'd raise tadpoles and then release them. And so at that age, like you're saying that you saw paradox and exanthics, like, did you know this, what you were looking at? Or do you realize now that's what you're looking at? Um, like I had an idea because I wanted to know why they were blue. I'm like, why are these green frogs blue? Mm-hmm. And so uh, do research back when, you know, the internet was barely an internet, but it was there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you'd find like, I'd figure out like why that was the case. And I was like, oh, that's what that means. And mm-hmm. like, I didn't understand the genetics and how it was recessive or whatever back then, but I right. understood the basics of it. Yeah. That's kind of all you need at the beginning, right? Just like very basic understanding of it. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So yeah, from there, a bit of a blank from there. I think I just kind of stopped for a couple of years because I moved. I was more into a town. And then for my last year of high school, I had to live with a friend of mine because my dad had to move out like far away from my school for, mm-hmm. for work. So at the time I started volunteering at a local pet store that did, it was such a cool store. I'm not going to, it was by far to this day, the best pet store I've ever been to. Mm-hmm. And I met someone there that's like to this day, still really good friend of mine. I've known him for, oh God, probably 15, 16 years now. And he sold me my first boa. I consider him a mentor. He's probably one of the best, most knowledgeable keepers. I know he keeps all the weird geckos that can never be produced in captivity and everything. Yeah. And that's basically where it all started. It was with that one boa he sold me. And then I quickly went into really obscure gamas. And then my fourth snake ever was a vine snake, mm-hmm. you know, gecko eating snake. And I've only been keeping reptiles for a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just where my weird fascination of oddball colubras just kind of spiraled down. Yeah, absolutely. I can imagine that was like a very eye-opening experience to have to go to a more advanced species pretty quickly. So you mentioned a lot that like you were looking at these animals, most specifically on your dad's farm. Were your parents rather supportive of of your animal collecting or animal habits or or were they a little freaked out? So my mom was pretty supportive of it. Like she's the one that lives in Connecticut Mm -hmm. and she actually ended up getting two corn snakes after I left. Oh, cool. My stepdad wanted snakes after and he was like, 
oh, let's get some corn snakes. <laughs> so they had corn snakes and they're still alive to this day. They're nearly almost 20 years old. Wow. And amazing. Like they, unfortunately they have cataracts now, but mm-hmm. they're, they're doing really well. Uh, she sent them up to me not long ago. And now like they're currently residing with a good friend of mine just to kind of, I guess, retire more or less. Mm-hmm. My dad same thing when I left to move to Ontario he got a Berber skink so (laughs) that's a little random right so I think uh it left a an impression on them they did support it quite a bit because you know it could have been worse right it could have been me going out doing other things that Mm -hmm. I should be doing you know yeah I didn't have my parents like all the time like they weren't together and dad was always moving around it could have been a potentially worse scene for some of my age at the time mm-hmm. so when it came to the reptiles they're pretty good my ex-stepmom was another story so yeah I won't, I won't get into that but she was not very supportive of it so everything frog wise was outside summer only mm-hmm. but uh once she was out of the picture that's when my dad was just like letting me get whatever I wanted snakes whatever like there's that's actually how I got my vine snake is he was at the mall one day and I'm like, oh, I'm going to go to the pet store across the street. And when I was waiting for him, I had a cage and a snake. I <laughs> love he had it. no idea. I was just like, oh, I got this, by the way. he loved it that was his favorite snake today was the vine snake yeah vine snakes are just stunning but i'm also just a fan of anything green and arboreal so you can't really go wrong in that regard in my head so i'm very fascinated how you kind of got into the importing business because most people when you talk about getting into reptiles as a full-time career, it goes one or two directions. It's usually like caring for them, like in a professional facility or private keeping and breeding. You took like the third option that isn't really considered. So for, when did you first recognize the market for importing and how did you kind of get involved with that? So there, I never recognized a market. It was pure, I don't want to say selfish greed, but it was determination on my part to get a certain snake. Okay. Um, so I'm just going to rewind a little bit but pre-import so it kind of makes sense. Yeah. My dream snake forever was a mangrove snake. Like before they were being captive bred, before there really had much information on them. Like not mm-hmm. your common wild caught import dendrophila. Like I wanted a nice large melanota from Malaysia. I'm like, I need this in my life. It's beautiful. And in the mm-hmm. Reptiles magazine, they had a poster. And I took that poster, I put it on my wall. And then the next day, I had a fortune cookie. And I forget exactly what this fortune cookie said, but it was something along the lines of, you know, keep at your goals, your dreams will come true. And I stuck this fortune underneath the poster and taped on the wall for and it was there for years. And then two years, well, not even two years, like two year and a half later. I had a captive bred Malaysian mangrove fall into my hand. Mm-hmm. And I was, I think, 16, maybe 17 years old at the time. Mm-hmm. And I'd never taken care of them in my life. I didn't know what to do. I didn't realize how finicky they were with food. And it was just, it was really hard at first, but he lived to 14 years old. So I call it a success. He was nine and a half feet long when he passed. Mm-hmm. But after about two years of having him, I discovered there was more species of mangroves. And there was this one particular one. The, it was a, called the Luzon mangrove snake, or there's also the Polilo, Boiga dendrophila divergence. And they're classic mangrove snake, but they have the blue flanks mm-hmm. going down their sides. And I was like, oh my God, I need these, but they're not in the hobby. Like they weren't at all. Like It was just a pipe dream. Mm-hmm. But 
I just kept looking around. I'm like, oh, I wonder where I can find them, you know? And I ran into this German classified site and there was an adult female for sale, a wild caught. To this day, honestly, I, I questioned how legal it was because from the Philippines and wild caught, I was like, I don't know, but they do allow export from when the zoo's there. So it, it's very plausible. But uh, I was just like, oh my God, I need this snake. How do I get it? And I contacted the person, had no idea who this person was in Germany. Never yeah. spoke to anyone in German. Like, that's a little risky. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, I want this snake. Can I buy it? How do I get it here? And I had no idea how to get it to Canada at all. I didn't even know international shipping was easy as it was for me. I bought mm-hmm. the snake. I had no idea how to get it, but I bought it. I was just like, okay, here's three grand. I, I just, I'll figure something out. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. a big risk. Yep. And he was really nice. He held it for, oh gosh, it's probably, it was about eight to 10 months. He held wow. the snake for me. You know, I kept looking and looking to find a way to bring her over. And then I met these two wonderful people in Poland, all like online. And they somehow had two captive bred babies, the first generations ever produced. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to buy a pair of these too. And maybe they'll help me figure out a way to, you know, ship them over to Canada. And lo and behold, they did. They knew someone and they arranged all the shipping for me, everything. And they suggested I grab a few more things, you know, and just to make it more worthwhile because it's expensive mm-hmm. bringing over. So I asked a few friends, like, hey, do you want anything from Europe? I'm like, it's at your full risk, but this will kind of help, you know, bring costs down, whatever, and you get some cool stuff. So a couple of friends got a few things too. We split the costs evenly, got the shipment. This was mm-hmm. October Oh, God, I think 2014, mm-hmm. I finally got the shipment and they all arrived alive and I got my dream divergence and at three of them, not just one. It was, it was the coolest thing ever. And th- that I'm pretty sure like 99.9% sure like these were the first ones that ever landed in on North American soil. And it was just, it was the coolest thing. They're so beautiful. I grew them up. I was able to produce them a few times. And then I officially sold them and moved them off the states. And now all the ones you see in the states have dispersed from them. And wow. uh, so it was, I was really happy to see that happen just in terms of that was my realization of, hey, if I bring in these really uncommon species, this is going to help diversify our hobby, you know, mm-hmm. instead of just being the same species over and over or really sensitive species are just not going to survive well being import wild caught. So that's basically how the importation started. It was just me wanting to get these three snakes mm-hmm. and then having friends kind of go on it and then realizing like, it was mostly for Canada because we're so behind here. It's Ball pythons, boas are even crashing here. They're not very popular. Crested geckos, leopard geckos, leeches, and repeat. It's just yeah. that cycle, right? And me being what I like and what I keep, it's just that's never been an option for me. Mm-hmm. So I just I want to start showing people what there is out there, and they're easier than you think to keep, depending on what you want. And it's it's worked out really well. So that's kind of where it came from. Yeah. I mean, that's an awesome story. So my question then goes like, if it's 2014, where were you in your keeping at that point? Were you already more deep into the rarer colubrids or was this really your first dive into a more niche species? So I kept a weird diversity of things. Like by then I was already producing um, mangrove snakes, like the more common Malaysian melanota. I, was, I probably had around five clutches like in my experience by then. 
I kept a few different scrub pythons, weird agamid species, varanus. I've had mock vipers at that point, a bunch of different vine snakes. Mm-hmm. And it was just like a big mix and mash of weird uncommon stuff. But I wouldn't say I was where I am today. That's for sure. Like I was still doing the whole exoterra, fake plants kind of situation and was a lot more inexperienced back then. No, that's definitely something we're going to get into because I do want to talk about the expansive and like incredible enclosures you have. Specifically, like people can't see it now. But the very first thing I noticed when you joined the call is you have like eight foot enclosures behind you that are decked out and gorgeous. And you're like, oh, yeah, these are just temporary setups. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Great. <laughs> All right. Uh, whatever. That's, yeah, mine are temporary too, for sure. Don't look at them. <laughs> okay. So I guess when you talked about getting into the hobby a little bit more and started with the Boa yeah. Agamids vine snake, and then you got into the Boiga more specifically, like it seems like a deeper into that. Was that your first like jump into rear fanged? And like, how was that for you as far as keeping those? So my very first jump into rear fang technically was the vine snake. I won't really count that though. But yeah, they got a a mock viper right after that. And then that's when the mangrove came in just a couple months later. I remember my first visit to Nerd just prior to that. And Mm -hmm. I was never able to find snake hooks. So I found this little dinky 12-inch snake hook. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, I might need this one day. And (laughs) of course, the mangrove snake came in and now like a whole 12 inches is going to do a lot. That makes oh, yeah. sense, right? I was going <laughs> um, to make a 12-inch joke, but I, I'll hold off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. But after I kept him for, I probably had him for about four to five months, and my absolute dumbass of a person got a, well, it was the juvenile green cat snake, and mm-hmm. that's that was whatever. But then I got a seven-foot Silhouette black mangrove with her. Jeezel, And... I mean, he might have been bigger than seven feet, but that was, to this day, he was the most hellish snake I've ever owned. I've never owned mm-hmm. a snake that big. I've never owned one that defensive. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize what I was getting myself into. I had mm-hmm. a 12-inch hook for the snake. Yeah, no. That was seven feet long and just evil, pure evil. And so I was 16 or 17 years old. I didn't know. I was that dumb kid and whatever. I used a blanket thrown over him to put him back in his enclosure or something. And mm-hmm. <laughs> that was the only way I was able to do it. And I, he was awesome. So like, I never had any issues, never had it bites happen. I was always very careful about that. That's still incredibly scary. Yeah. Yeah. I think like, even, <laughs> even if you're like, oh yeah, it, it was fine. Like it's still in the moment, like pretty freaky. Exactly. But I think that's where my huge respect and appreciation came in for rear fang species mm-hmm. and that's more or less ever since then they've always been in my life and that's all i really keep now are specifically rear fang colubrid. okay so yeah. i asked my friends if they had any questions for you before we started chatting and justin smith mentioned that you had a pretty significant bite from one of your boiga and i was wondering if you're comfortable talking about that because i think yeah. a lot of times people can think okay so like i run the female herpers and reptile keepers group and we don't allow free handling and most people mm-hmm. think that just is for medically significant but like in general i don't like to allow free handling of boiga or other similar yeah. species because I completely agree. Hognos are like a different beast because it's just totally different world as as far as like public perception of it. And it's harder for me to police that. But with like the boy gun stuff, I'm a little bit more cautious. I don't really have a reason to be cautious because I've never gotten injured, but you hear stories like yours and it does make you a little bit more aware of like the dangers that they can pose. So I was wondering if you could talk through that situation. 
Absolutely. I'm going to make a quick little blurb first. I react worse to a hog nose than I did to that mangrove snake. Really? Yeah. Interesting. So and you sense. probably learned that the wrong way. <laughs> yeah, well, I thought they, I, everyone said, oh, they're not rear fanged and there. But uh, yeah, I had two incidences with Boyga. So my first one was with the green cat snake I got after, just after I moved to Ontario. And this was back when people were like, oh, you don't have to worry about them. They're not dangerous, whatever. Mm-hmm. And you can only trust the people are supposed to be more experienced than you, right? Right. I always respected her still. She always got hooked. It was a dumb mistake I did. She was in an 18 by 18 by 18 sliding glass enclosure. So the doors for each side were maybe this wide. And that's mm-hmm. it. She always sat in the back far corner back far right corner and she would only eat in the middle of the night so before lights out i would just go in put a mouse in the enclosure towards the front left mm-hmm. and that's it i did that all the time whatever and this is before hemostats were a common thing in canada so mm-hmm. i just quickly put it in and right. one night she decided it was food early and when i put my hand in before i could even pull it out i had a snake latched onto my middle finger mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. You know, I wasn't too worried just because everyone said, oh, it's, don't worry about it. It's fine. And out of the entire genus, they are the least toxic. Like it's nothing right. to worry about. Right. So I was like, okay, I still got to get her off just in case, you know, obviously. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the problem was my she pulled my arm back to the back right corner. Mm-hmm. So my arm's way in the back. I have a sliding glass door on the other side. I can't move my maneuver my hands around to get to my hands. Right. So I'm you don't want to like rip your finger. I, I can't like she had me tangled up in the branches, everything. Like oh, I geez. could not yeah. move. And I was like, I couldn't get to her. I was alone up at the bedroom. Like everyone else was in the basement. I'm like two floors up. And I'm like, well, this is what do I do? Right. Mm-hmm. And I finally managed to untangle her with the hand she was biting. So as she was biting me, I was trying to untangle her with that same hand because she was in the branches. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it was probably a good two and a half minutes before I managed to get her out. Mm. Went all the way downstairs. I ran her underwater to let her get her to let go. And it was fine. There was no issues. It just looked like a normal snake bite, whatever. And over the course of three days, I had like my hands started to swell a little bit. It was, mm-hmm. it was all very localized. She got me like right in the tip right here on my finger. And it started turning like a dark purplish black. And you could see I had this, I have photos somewhere online. It was like a red line just slowly moving down my hand. Oh God, like blood poisoning? Kind of, yeah. It was just like this line. You could just see it progressing over the course of a few days. And the swelling was behind this line. It was like a very slow motion tsunami kind of situation. And it only went to my wrist. Mm -hmm. That was it. It was very local. It was pretty purple, though, like my finger. It was, it was, and about five days later, it was, it was gone. It was fine. I had no more issues. That was definitely the most interesting bite I've had. It didn't hurt at all. It mm-hmm. was, it was actually kind of fascinating to see what was going on and the progression of all of it. But my only other boega bite was when the baby divergence I had, like when he was fully grown, he was around six foot. He always hid in this cork log. Mm-hmm. and he was probably around six foot and his head was beefy like it was huge mm-hmm. and I always tease him out of the cork if I have to do something and make him go to the other side of the enclosure so I swore I saw him move to the other side of the enclosure but I guess it must have been an anole or something that kind of took off to the other side from the corner of my eye I should have checked I didn't and I accidentally dropped a shovel down this cork tube 
like this mm-hmm. little handheld shovel because I was doing some plant work in there. Yeah. And so I went to go reach my hand into the cork to grab the shovel and he mm. was still there. Mm-hmm. And thank God it wasn't a hard, like a long prolonged bite or anything, but I just heard a crunch. Like it was a very audible crunch of his teeth just going right into my knuckles. Oh God. Yeah. And he let go. Thank goodness. Because Filipino species are thought to be a little bit more spicier. Yeah. And even with that quick little crunch, he, my finger swelled up pretty good mm-hmm. for a couple days, but it was just my finger. That was it. Thank God. Um, but that, that's it. That's all that ever happened. That is so interesting. And, and I guess my question for you then would be like, obviously it feels like more of an anomaly that you seem to have a more adverse reaction to these bites. But why do you think it is that people are so cavalier with the animals that like can be, they're not as harmful, but they could potentially be, you know, this, yeah, this is something I, I try not to argue with people too much about it, but the fact is it's still a venom protein doing what venom does you know people say oh it's you're you're allergic or you're having a sensitive allergic reaction no mm-hmm. if i was not having an out like an allergic reaction i'd be on the floor with anaphylaxis shot right that's just how it is with bees you're not maybe allergic you're not slightly allergic you are or you're not and it's it's no different it's a venom protein still it's being injected into you mm-hmm. it's it's my I'm, i don't know if it's just my smaller figure or compared to like a guy or something i mm-hmm. i don't know it could just be i don't know blood type would play a role i have no idea but i do tend to get the brunt of venom reactions mm-hmm. why like again I, I don't know but it it's not an allergy. It is what venom does. Mm-hmm. There's, it is what it is. And that's not something I think could be argued because it's doing literally what it's supposed to do. Yeah. So you mentioned that you have worse reactions to hognose bites. How have you seen that happen in yourself? So I was helping a friend clean his hognose and he was like, oh, they're really friendly. And they were, they were great, great little mm-hmm. hognose. And I held like an adult male in my hand, I was cleaning the enclosure, and then I went to go put him back. Mm-hmm. And he's like, Oh, here's dinner. And he grabbed my and he finger. Got you. Oh, gosh. And I was like, Oh, okay. It sucks because like, they're dumb, too. <laughs> you know, it was, it was interesting. It was just like, Why did you just do this? And mm-hmm. I, I was just like, Whatever. It hurt a lot. I'm not gonna lie because he was chewing into my finger, and those teeth don't feel nice when they chew into Mm-mm. you. And I just thought, whatever, it's just a colubrid. They're not venomous, according to people. Oh, my God. I, it took forever to get them off because they have, like, bulldog jaws. Yes. And it was it was credit card, like, underwater, like, everything. Couldn't get them off. Finally got them off. And immediately, within 10 minutes, my hand just, like, blew up. Like, it started on my knuckle here, and it just, like, moved all the way down my arm. And by day three, it was down to my elbow. Like I was just oh, so that's swollen. scary. Yep. And I was actually looking at the photos yesterday with a friend of mine because I have progression photos of that too. I always take mm-hmm. photos like that. But if yeah, I mean, of course. It's interesting. Yeah. yeah. And it didn't hurt. It, like, it just kind of felt like a subtle sunburn more than mm-hmm. anything. And this is the pressure pain. But that was definitely the most interesting bite in terms of reactivity and spread. Yeah. I never discol- got discoloration or anything, but the fact it spread all the way to my elbow was was different. My hand yeah. doubled in size. 
That's very fascinating. Yeah. I ha- I don't have a lot of experience with hog noses, but I like there's a couple species of animals that for some reason just scare me. And it's so mm-hmm. stupid that hognose are one of them because I know like they're one of the smallest species <laughs> I've worked with, <laughs> but like my friend, Matt from KMB reptiles, he and his wife had just gotten married and they asked me to pet sit after their wedding. And it was like hilarious because they have a big collection of ball pythons and then a few um, hognose and they have one hognose and she's just a brat. Her name is Noir. Do you remember that viral hognose picture of that like really silver hognose sitting on a guy's hand that was like in a perfect coil? That's that's Noir. That's Matt's animal. And she's so mean. And it was hilarious because I was like fully tailing this hognose like with a hook. (laughs) trying to get it that's what trying I to clean the and I was like oh my god like if anyone saw me they would laugh out loud but I was like we're not getting bit today like I have a long mm-hmm. drive home I appreciate you you sharing your bite stories though because I do think it's important to to talk about it because especially with social media apps like TikTok and stuff I think that I love seeing people like start to love these animals but when it is a species like hognose or another another animal that has venom whether you consider it dangerous or not, like you can't not talk about it because God forbid someone who does see someone has a, a hog nose on TikTok, falls in love with it, gets one themselves for their kid, and then their kid gets bit and they have no idea what to look out for, right? Exactly. I, it scares me when people say hog nose are great for kids. So I'm like, no, man. Yeah. No way. <laughs> yeah. I think if you're going to get a kid, if you want like an animal like that for your kid, I would say sand boa all the way. You know, very similar. I'm not as, um, I think it's funny that like the spiciness, quote unquote, of a hog nose is what attracts people to them. But any other species that like had that bluff strike or like that aggressive demeanor would be so scary to a lot of people. Right? (laughs) Yeah, it just doesn't make sense. Hey guys, this is Jeremy Turgeon from Brassman Reptiles and the Reptile Talk Podcast. If you're looking for another awesome source of reptile content, come on over and check Rob and I out. Talking with reptile keepers from around the block and around the world. New episodes air every week and are available on the Brassman Reptiles YouTube channel and all major podcast streaming platforms. We'll see you in the next episode. Are you tired of changing a reptile's UVB light every six months? Well, VivTech Products has the perfect bulb for you. The VivTech SureSun Series UVB and UVA bulb has a typical four-year lifespan with no UVB degradation. That means that your pet will always have the UVB and UVA they need, all while you save up to $400 over the life of the bulb. VivTech, providing a better life for reptiles in our homes and the wild through innovative husbandry. Enjoy the rest of the episode. So kind of getting back into like more of what Northern Lights does nowadays. So I'd love for you to talk about how you created Northern Lights. So obviously it was originally so you could start to get in your own animals, but then I'm sure you noticed that there was like a definite market for more people being interested in it. And then a lot of people ask questions about starting their own reptile business. So I'd love to just talk about how it evolved from you doing this for you and your friends to the full scale business it is today. So it's definitely not normal I guess I don't want to say cliche, but the normal way a business starts, I ended up developing a lot of friends in Europe and they didn't want to sell directly in Europe because they don't want to flood the markets and like, Hey, do you mind offering this in Canada kind of thing? And then it just kind of went from there and grew and grew because I started to get to know more people in Europe. And 
then I had other people starting to contact me like, oh, I hear you bring it from Europe. Is there any way you could find this for me? And it just kind of spiraled into a wish list situation where people would send me wish lists. I'd find them, whatever, and talk to people and source them and sell to them and just kind of go from there. Lately, I've been doing something a little different where I just get offers and put them on my website and people can also look for their own thing. Mm -hmm. I don't have the time so much anymore to do wish list stuff. Right. Just because of how much busier it got. But back then that's what I used to do. And yeah, it's, it developed all from friendships and which is usually very backwards because friends are friends, business is business is a general motto. Right. And Mm -hmm. for the most part, I, I try and follow that trend, but I, trying to figure out a way to say this, I tend to develop relationships, like friendship relationships with my customers and the sellers. Cause I find that's much more important in the end and you develop trust that way too. Right. With everybody. Yeah. So and I think it, when it, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. Go ahead. And I think it, it, it can be a little different specifically in our industry because at the end of the day, like granted, be it a gecko or like a croc monitor or something, you're dealing with a life, regardless of the monetary value you've put on it. It's not the same as if you were like selling coffee mugs, you know, like you don't necessarily need to be friends with your customers as much if you're selling an inanimate object as you are with with animals where like there is a expectation and level of trust throughout the entire process that like you both have to have with each other. Exactly. And that's ultimately what it does come down to because then I have a sense of what these people do, how they keep their animals, show me what they do. And it really works out in terms of starting a business, test the waters first. That's what I did. Don't dive in and spend thousands of dollars and getting incorporated and stuff. Mm-hmm. It took me about five years to finally feel comfortable to get myself incorporated and make it a full-time situation. And now when it comes to importing, you have to know all the laws, not just your own country's laws. You need to know the the exporting location laws and Mm -hmm. you have to be able to be well-versed in the CITES appendix and just even country of origin laws. Even if you're not buying from, let's say, oh gosh, Argentina, you're getting animals that originated from Argentina, but they're in Europe. You got to know these laws from Argentina and how to go around and process things. I'm just using Argentina as a random example. Right. But uh, actually, no, I'll use my Filipino mangroves as an example. The Philippines doesn't export. Mm-hmm. They just, they don't unless it's zoo to zoo basis. So mm-hmm. the same like with AZA, like they could kind of trade with amongst with each other, even from right. a country that's otherwise closed. So I had Filipino species coming through, but they all derived from Russia, which there's a zoological facility there that did trade with a Filipino zoo. So mm-hmm. everything was through legal transit in that regards. But if it was anything else, I, I would not dare touch it. So it's just, if it's a species you don't know, I would do the best to research where they originated from. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes it's, that's a little hard to do, or you might get lied to. So I just do my due diligence to the best of my ability in that case. But if there's anything that's like clearly sketchy it's just stay away from it it's not worth it no and i see a lot of people it's mostly in the states (laughs) there's a lot of wild caught importation that happens Mm -hmm. and it scares me knowing what happens to most of these animals because where do they go right and that's when i say like start small take your time because these people just dive right into it hardcore get thousands of animals from these sketchy wild caught places and they're just destined to die. 
And Mm -hmm. even if you have to spend more money to get less animals, learn about them. Learn about them, learn the species, learn the the ways they are. Don't just throw them in a bin and forget about them. They are still living souls. They're still species that need individual needs. Like you have your desert geckos and your tropicals. They cannot just be kept the same. Mm -hmm. And people have this stigma that importers are just dirty, disease-filled places. And it's unfortunate that I see people getting into importation like, oh, what does it matter? Importers have mites, so it's okay for me to have mites. Right. So no, it's it's really not. And if you start slow, you work your way up, you learn about everything you want to bring in, you're fine. You're going to be okay. You're going to succeed. And you're going to be much more well-respected mm-hmm. in terms of importing. So I know I'm kind of flip-flopping in a few things here, but basically just take your time. You know, learn, research. It's going to be a pain. It's going to take a long time, but you will further appreciate what you do and the animals you work with and what should and should not be imported for the general public. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And you bring up a couple questions that I wanted to touch on. And I think the one that arguably in my mind is the most important important is how you maintain ethics when you're dealing with, like you said, potentially wild-caught species or like an industry, and this is obviously not a reflection of you, but an industry that has a rougher reputation. So when it comes to you specifically importing animals, how do you maintain your standard of of what you're importing or exporting? And then how do you vet your importers or um, exporters to make sure that you are providing high quality animals to then high quality homes? So I'll start with the, I guess, my, my personal side of things first before I touch on the sellers. So when it comes to ethics on my end, I'll use the wild caught stuff as an example. I bring in minimal wild caught. I prefer mm-hmm. not to because of the risks involved, right? Like right. You're, there's going to be mites. I know that for a fact. There's going to be mites. There might be RIs. There might be other unknown pathogens. So especially when I have wild caught stuff come in, once everybody lands and everyone's settled in, if there's mites, they get treated immediately. Like it's mm-hmm. it's not going to be foolproof. Whoever the buyer is, I warn them ahead of time. Like, hey, just enough why there might be mites. Right. Treating them in the meantime, but just keep an eye out. Mm-hmm. Other than that, I actually have my vet come by and we do spot testing with fecals. Hmm. So I'll take random samples across the entire import area, the room, wild caught, capped red, whatever. And we get things tested and checked out. And if all is good in the clear, then great. That's awesome. If there's any issues and we pinpoint what species it is, I'll hold them back depending on the situation. I inform the, the buyer. And then we just kind of work from there in terms of what to do. Um, Now, I obviously, full disclosure, like I keep everything as nice as I can. But Mm -hmm. the fact is, when I have like 800 heads coming in, I can't do this. Like We're not going to have fully planted enclosures. So a lot of things do get binned. However, let's just say a crested gecko. I do eco-earth. I won't do paper towel unless it's a tiny, tiny baby. Then I will. But they mm-hmm. get cork, they get fake plants. They're not just bland, put into a jar and forgotten about. Like they get mm-hmm. fed, they sprayed everything. But I try and give them cork just for a texture, something natural to grab onto. If I have like 25 frilled dragon babies come in, like honestly, they go together, but in a large enclosure. Like mm-hmm. they go into like a three by two by two type setup cork and branches, UVB, basking, everything. Mm-hmm. So they're they're not ever kept dirty. They have a natural substrate. They're all fed, watered. Within like once they land next day, everybody gets fed. And mm-hmm. I usually go through around 10,000 crickets in one day on an import. Wow. So it's that I must smell them. great. 
<laughs> right. Oh, it's so funny. It, it's a lot. It's definitely a lot. And uh, I do treat everything with as much as respect as possible. And I still try and keep them as, I don't want to say natural, but as natural as I can given the circumstances. Mm-hmm. So that way they're not as stressed out. More uncommon species that are like extremely sensitive, I always have planted enclosures on the side. So I usually talk to sellers and be like, hey, do you mind me putting X species in this enclosure? They're always empty for three months. So if there's anything weird from a previous import, it's gone. It's not going to be there, right? Right. And it's usually lizards anyway. So it's not a huge, huge worry. But more often than not, it's fine because they'd rather their animal be alive versus put into this sterile. It's going to kill it type enclosure right. right so i usually have larger three to four foot enclosures put aside that are always empty for those type of species mm-hmm. and um i've never had issues to date it's always worked out really well and other than that the wild caught stuff i don't bring in for just anybody they are brought in only in pairs groups or i guess just pairs of groups and it's usually groups if they're on sex just so you have a better chance of getting you know, different sexes. And they only go to people who are either expanding their group for lineage and bloodline, or if they are insistent on getting a species established in captivity. Mm -hmm. I'm never, ever going to sell things like wild-caught leopard geckos. There's Mm -hmm. enough out there. Yeah, I'm never going to import wild-caught Javan or Indonesian mangrove snakes, the common cheap ones you see that are half dead usually on the import tables at expos they have like a 95 percent death rate in captivity mm. i don't support that i do not support that i don't care how cheap they are and that's always what happens is oh but they're cheap i'm gonna get it no it's gonna die unfortunately they are so high stress i out of i brought in 20 once to see what i can do with them i've had two survive and it took me two and a half years to get the meeting Holy yeah <laughs> So they usually come in extremely dehydrated. And even if you get them hydrated, their kidneys are they're long gone by then. And mm-hmm. that is the main issue with them. And their organs just slowly shut down. They stop eating. And I find that incredibly, it's cruel, you know, just to keep bringing stuff like that in just because you can make a buck or two off of it. It's That bothers me, you know, that mm-hmm. really, really bothers me. And that's a, one thing that actually really pushed me to start doing the European imports. And that does tie into vetting the sellers I use now. Probably my best friend in Europe. He is a big time mangrove snake breeder. His name is Chris. He's from the Netherlands and he has managed to produce species that no one else can to this day. Mm -hmm. And so people like him, I will support tenfold any day over even if I'm not making $1 on the snake, I will bring in those animals before any import, even if that means I'm making $200 on one snake, I will, I'll bring in the captive bread hundred percent because it's better for the species. It's better for the new owner. And I am supporting a good friend of mine. Uh, that's just one example, but just other sellers in general, like it, at first it was a risk because I don't know who these people were. I just had to right. trust them, you know? Right. It can be hard to I, do in the reptile hobby. Exactly. And I would ask a lot of references and now I have learned people in Europe get really uncomfortable when you ask them your typical American or Canadian questions for references, mm-hmm. people you know, who you have you sold to. They, I think it's more offensive for them, even if they're good people. And because mm-hmm. it's like, oh, I don't trust you kind of thing. And right. they probably have a good reputation there, but overseas, it's like, I don't know who you are, you know? And right. 
so like I would just kind of get to know them a bit then just casually ask other people off on the side say, hey do you know this person or mm-hmm. do you know anyone that might and or can you meet up with this person like I have people that will drive hours I have a few friends they've driven five six hours for me in Europe just to go pick up some snakes and babysit wow. them wow. and uh, it's it's incredible like I, I can't thank them enough for that but because of that I now know the f- in the future these sellers they're trustworthy you know mm-hmm. so it just kind of patterns from that for it was through a lot of reptile shows like the ham show in Germany so I would have a friend like I'd send them cash like hey can you go buy this off this person Mm-hmm. And they would just buy them that way. So it was pretty safe in yeah. that regards. I have had the odd situation with sellers where they would send the animals. It was just deplorable. Like the quality mm-hmm. of them, even if they were captive bred, I just kind of start to question it. And they just lie it to me. And people yeah. like that, I drop them. I don't care. I drop them and I just say, nope, sorry. And mm-hmm. even if a buyer is like, oh, please, I really want to buy from this person. Still, I know the risks. I won't do it. I will not do it, even if that means I'm, let's just say I'm out like even five grand from one customer. I won't do it. It's ethically not correct to do that Mm -hmm. and support someone in that sense. That's a strong stance to take, but I I respect it (laughs) because I think that uh, it can be hard to have strong morals that maybe contradict other people in the same industry, especially when you're starting, when you're building a business and obviously you're more established now, but in the beginning, that must've been very difficult. It was, it really, really was. And there's times like, I'm never going to move forward doing this. And like the whole nice guys finish last kind of phrase, Mm -hmm. it's very true. And it wasn't for the support of some of my friends, both in Europe and in North America, I probably wouldn't be where I am today. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I, I can't thank them enough for always being there and being able to bring me to where I am now and being mm-hmm. able to do that. So switching gears a little bit, I guess mm. I'd like to talk about the importation process in general as it affects the buyer. So like for me, I've never imported anything. I've purchased from importers who have already brought animals in, but I've never gone about seeking an animal from another country. So, and I, and that's like very intimidating for me. It's like, there's animals yeah. I see that I'd, I'd love to get, but I don't know where to start. Can you, can you try to talk through how that works from um, like a buyer's perspective? Yeah, absolutely. So there's two options. Options. The trusted sellers I work with, I post them on my website. So people don't have to question too much their the like references and whatever. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, it's basically contact me, put the deposit down. I contact the buyer, I mean the seller, sorry, and be like, hey, this one sold. Here's a deposit for it. The the guy just forwarded the deposit I received. And the on average, depending on the time the animal was purchased, let's say in December, and I was importing in April they have three months to pay this animal off. So this mm-hmm. allows buyers to get a more higher end animal and you're on a payment plan until March. So I kind of, I, I work that way. Like it's a little risky because people do and can back out that way, mm-hmm. but it's just selling trust. It's allowing that diversity to come in and people more often than not, they, there's no issues with it. Mm-hmm. So you, you do this payment plan and then you pay it off just before shipment happens. So I could pay off the seller because I'm not paying that out of my pocket. I'm not that rich, mm-hmm. much as I'd love yeah. to be. <laughs> you know, and if it's not paid, I either if it's cheap enough, I still bring it in just to resell, or I tell the, the seller, sorry, you know, keep the deposit kind of situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or what some people do, they source their own sellers or they have friends there already and they contact me, like, hey, can I bring in this animal? Mm-hmm. And I always, always, always need people to check with me first because sometimes people don't know CITES. They don't know the laws. 
like European snakes, for example, depending on the country in Europe that they leave from, you need a proof of origin certificate. Right. And some people don't provide that due to questionable legalities. And mm-hmm. it's just little things like that go a long way. And last thing I need is my export to get in trouble. Oh, yeah. Or myself, right? And that's that's not something I need to happen. Mm-hmm. So I have everyone tell me who the seller is, where they're from, what species and the value. So once they confirm everything with me and I give the okay, they could go buy their animal and all is good. And then all I do at that point is either I'll help broker the sale if they don't have PayPal or something, wire transfer, depending how the seller wants it, or they mm-hmm. can buy it themselves. And then at that point, I only charge them the import service fee. So aside from the animal cost, I, when I import in, I do have to charge a 5% Canada customs fee. That's basically the import tax mm-hmm. upon arrival. And then there's just the shipping fees. And I try and keep them as reasonable as possible. But basically, the more you buy, the cheaper it gets. Like it's, I think in the US for one animal, it's $80 to bring in from Europe to Canada, mm-hmm. plus the 5%. And then to ship from Canada to the USA, it's a flat rate fee. So you could have one or 20 crested geckos it's up to a 16 by 11 box. And that's going to cost you $200, but that includes your U.S. Fish and Wildlife paperwork. That includes shipping. That includes the import fees, everything. Mm-hmm. So when you add it all up, it's pretty cheap in the end. Yeah. Because most people so, aren't just purchasing one animal. Exactly. Unless it's something incredibly high end, mm-hmm. then it's usually multiple. But the odd person that does uh, get one animal or a replacement or something, I send them to my friend in Florida. Um, you probably know her. Brittany Williams, Ivory Exotics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So she's she's a really good friend of mine and she's basically my US partner in terms okay. of helping sales and stuff and all the one-off stuff she will take in and people just pay a three dollars per head for help cover her her part of the box and everything. And then she just ships nationwide to them. Nice. So I I try and accommodate it that way the best possible and try to make it as easy as possible for the buyer. So basically just yeah. pay and wait. <laughs> And I can imagine that that timeline can be anywhere from a month to a year. Yeah, more. Depending, yeah. Depends what it is. <laughs> yeah. So a couple of questions on that of things you talked about. How do you keep track of CITES, laws that are happening within the States, within Canada, like country to country? And then I know that most of the pricing on your website um, is from the EU to Canada and then to the US. Were there any issues when... Uh, Brexit happened as far as exporting from there because it's no longer EU. Uh, yeah, so UK. I've actually always done UK separately. I have a friend there. Okay. He breeds Ackies and stuff. So mm-hmm. we Thinking decided. Ahead. Yeah, exactly. So I used to just import monitors from him only, and then we decided after Brexit happened that we'll just start dealing with him anytime I bring in the monitors we'll bring in more stuff like so he has designated ports across the UK he'll meet up with people Mm -hmm. take the animals and then I just import them in along with the monitors so he makes money great I could bring in more stuff for everybody works well and so it costs a little bit more to do it that way but it's better on the animals too it's less travel they don't go all the way to Germany then all the way to Canada they just leave UK to Canada yeah so it's it's better in that sense. Worked out really well. So there wasn't much fuss when it when it came to the whole Brexit situation. That's really convenient. Yeah. Because <laughs> I could imagine that that could be a pain in the ass. 
And then how do you, um, are you like a one woman team or, or do you have people who assist you within your importing, exporting? And do you guys all manage the CITES and following oh, the laws yeah. or CITES. I forgot about that part. No, you're good. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I'll, I'll just touch on the CITES stuff quickly first. That one took a long time. It's not an overnight memorization. I know most species now when they get mentioned to me if they're CITES or not, mm-hmm. I do always cross-reference just in case. And I do get re- regular notifications from CITES now if there's mm-hmm. going to be new proposals out for species to so keep up on it. So CITES is the Convention on International Trade of Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora. So it's not just reptiles, it's mammals, birds, flowers, even bugs. Like It's whatever mm-hmm. that... Some things really don't make sense with it. like, But it's whatever the country of origin feels they need protection. Okay. All pythons, for God forbid, whatever reason... They felt they needed to get protected. And there's this other species I question, but a lot of them make a lot of sense. So places like Australia, there are nothing really, unless it's a python or a monitor, they're mm-hmm. not on the protective list with CITES. However, as of November, they're going to be. So hmm. everything you see in this hobby right now, that's Australian nephurus, uh, Australian water dragons, they're going to be CITES by 2022. This is because of all the smuggling that happens out of the country, unfortunately. And mm-hmm. a lot of the species that are on the studies list are the same. Like, cause I think it was Cuba last year put all of their iconic species onto studies that they were seeing frequently, frequenting, sorry, the reptile trade when they shouldn't be cause they never legally left. So, mm-hmm instead of just controlling them at their port because you might miss someone smuggling them in a bag or something they asked if they could be proposed into the CITES database and then with that if the CITES rules yes that means they're now protected across the world okay so now it's every single port where the species will go and to check if they're smuggled or of legal origin because you need documentation with them Okay. So even if a python, like, okay, say we're talking about a knobtail gecko, right? Yeah. That was originally from Australia, but then someone, you know, say 30 years ago, got them into the UK. They've been breeding them. And then next year they try to import or export them to the US. They will then be CITES, even though that specific gecko came from the UK. Exactly. And anytime something goes on to CITES for the first time, it's a little, it's a little squirrely because they want proof of origin of the, of the species and everything. And Mm -hmm. When they're non-CITES, when they're not on the appendix, you don't exactly keep track of where you bought this animal from or the parents and the grandparents of. Right. So they usually give exemption at first for a few breeders, like, okay, whatever, let's just got to get the permits going. And it's some sort of traceability. Mm-hmm. Of, so permits could be done. Tokies are another great example. They were never CITES. As mm-hmm. of, I think, last year, they're now CITES. Hmm. because that's a hard one to keep track of yeah yeah and the reason why they went on CITES isn't even because so much the pet trade but because of medicinal use what what are you talking about (laughs) so you know like I don't want to sound derogatory or anything but like Mm -hmm. Chinese medicine they're often used 
for medicinal whatever and they're caught on mass and then killed okay. or eaten or but like when it comes to food and stuff like that's fine and whatever within the country of they, they come from mm-hmm. but when they get exported out to other countries for that use that's when gotcha. they should come to hand because okay. they're depleting a population from another country that they shouldn't be doing that with okay um mm-hmm. And that's when studies is like, okay, no, these are going on the list now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the population is dropping too quickly, even though they're still common. So protect them before something happens. Mm-hmm. Does it ever happen where animals are taken off of CITES list? Not usually, no. I think, I don't want to say for sure. I might just be making this up. But I want to say, I think it's happened once. Okay. I'm not sure. I'm really not sure. I don't think so. Because you would think something like a ball python would be taken off. But right. they're not, right? They're they're mm-hmm. so commonly captive bred. They're still imported from the wild, but they, they're quota-based. So anything on the permits, not on the permits, sorry, on the appendix, they're usually quota-based per country. So when you import a green tree monitor from Indonesia, that particular exporter can only ship out, I don't know, let's say 50 in a year. Mm-hmm. So you must split up this 50 amongst X amount of buyers. Mm-hmm. And that way it controls the, controls the population and they're not depleted too quickly. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. So that's like obviously a lot to handle. So like I was asking before, like, is it, is it you or do you have people who help you? Obviously a Brittany who's a partner, but uh, she's, you know, other side of the, the continent. So it must be kind of <laughs> hard to, you know, have a uh, conference calls. Yeah. So for the most part, everything is by myself, like mm-hmm. all the, the advertising, doing all the invoicing, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Brittany and another friend here in Canada, she's out West. They both help me do sales as well because I can't do everything at once. So what I end up doing is when I have to get like a reasonable resellable list from sellers, I send them to both Brittany and my friend out West, Terry, mm-hmm. and they advertise, they make their own sales and they're basically buying them from me at a wholesale cost. Mm-hmm. So, you know, then they're fair and, I'm not competing cost with them so much. Everything is kind of balances out evenly. So no one has to worry about that. So they kind of help in that sense. And then when I have imports come in, I usually have a couple of friends that come by and help out. And it's either, you know, I pay them or they get an extremely good discount on an animal they wanted or just free import, just, you know, something, whatever works for people. Right. There's definitely no way I could put away six to 1200 heads myself it's not possible and even with help with two other people it takes around two days to do i'll be Mm -hmm. completely honest it takes around two days to do but we always make sure everybody gets water the first night like they come out they get soaked then they get put back until you know get the space going for them Mm -hmm. um i have a lot of a lot of help in europe as well and Mm -hmm. this comes back to the you know get making friends and having good friendship relationships where I have people meet up, they do courier for me, or if there's a reptile show over there that my shipment happens to land on and all the sellers want to meet up there. Uh, My friend Chris goes around and he meets up with all the sellers for me and he collects all my animals. And then brings them to, yeah. And then he brings them to the exporter because these people can't leave their table. It's Mm -hmm. usually just them. So he goes around and collects them for me or People in the Netherlands, they drive to him to make him like the one stop for my expert to go pick up everything. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of organization in terms of that, but it works. Yeah. <laughs> so I am, I'm fascinated. So I'm sure you're noticing, but I'm looking like totally at my other screen because mm-hmm. I'm looking at your website and the sheer variety of animals that are available 
is astounding. So um, one of the questions that another one of my friends had when I mentioned that I'd be interviewing you, it's kind of a twofold question. Like it seems like most of them are is, do you ever get animals in that you're not quite sure the care for, especially for that, like the interim that they're in your, in your care. And then two, how do you go about establishing or caring for more difficult species? I know you mentioned the, the fully planted setups that you do use, but can you go into a little more detail about general care um, once they're in your hands? Yeah, for sure. So when it comes to the species I don't know about, uh, more often than not, those are going to be captive bred. Mm-hmm. God, I don't know, captive bred, some weird gecko species usually. So I will ask the seller or the breeder to run it through and mm-hmm. give it the best basic parameters and then I can go from there. I often will always research a species I don't know first. I look up their origin I'm one of those people where I'll look up hundreds, if possible, if there's hundreds, hundreds of in situ photos from herping trips. Mm-hmm. So I can get an idea of their microhabitat. Mm-hmm. And then I'll look up their, like the temperatures, the average temperatures within the range, and then see how that reflects what I was told from the seller. And then mm-hmm. just, I kind of work out my means from there. And I apply that same type of practice with the sensitive things. So I always mm-hmm. look into where they come from both with photos and information on temperature and humidity and time of year. So I got these lizards in recently. There's some little fence lizard and they come from a very specific microhabitat in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And they come from like open bromeliad forests. Right. So, or air plants, like maybe not bromeliads, but air plants anyway. Mm-hmm. And there are these trees, there's with air plants and moss just attached to them. And you can tell it's forested, but it's very open. Yeah. So what that tells me is it's very humid here, but there's a lot of airflow. So you mm-hmm. cannot have warm humidity. It must be cooler humidity with, because the coolness is the airflow that kind of plays into yeah. that. So then I know I, how to keep them compared to other fence lizards that like a stupid hot. These guys need humidity, but airflow. Then I have to figure out how to tie that in. So I'll put a fan in there while they have a good hot basking spot because, you know, the sun in Mexico, it's hot. It's mm-hmm. you, you can't get rid of that, right? So they have a very hot basking spot, but the rest of the enclosure is humid along with good airflow. Hmm. So it's just stuff like that I always try to implement with any species that is new to me or that's just overall sensitive. Yeah, I can imagine. So how does it work? God forbid, you know, knock on wood, an animal dies in your care. Like what what do you have in place as far as like your uh, guidelines are like protecting you and the customer and the buyer and all that stuff? Yeah, oh, well, it happens. You know, it's something that I can't deny. Nobody can die, deny that. Even mm-hmm. our own personal animals, things happen. And yeah. it, it's just the unfortunate fact of life, li- like working with living beings. It depends on the scenario. So if it's something that came in subpar quality, like not as advertised, I will speak with the seller. I will always help the buyer in that case. It doesn't matter what happened. I will try and, what's the word, represent the buyer in that case. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'll tell them like, you know, hey, this happened. Is there something we can do? And usually it's either replacement refunds, partial refunds. I will always on my end to refund the import fees or credit it depending mm-hmm. if it's something that happened unfortunately in my care like something escaped uh that's on me that's completely yeah. on me and and i will work with the buyer in the best way they want to do this mm-hmm. now in my case like of course i would really rather not do the refund just because it's just you know business side but if they want that i will do it mm-hmm. or they could get credit mm-hmm. 
So there's times where it was a very unfortunate situation that happened last year. Thank God it was a solo shipment where a bunch of captive bred snakes came in, unfortunately, with crypto. And gotcha, yeah. Yeah. And that was a very scary time. And thank God it was only these guys that came in. Mm-hmm. And I just happened to be like, oh, no, I'm going to get these guys tested. Just doing my, like, my random sporadic testing before anything came in, left, whatever. And they got tested and they were tested positive. And I was like, mm-hmm. thank God they're in their own room. I didn't even unpack them at that point. So mm-hmm. it was... Thank God. I always say that to myself. Like, thank God that happened that way. Yeah, that's scary though. Yeah, in that case, no questions. They got refunded, or if they rather it's a credit for future sales, they got a credit until whenever they buy something. So I always hold that. I always have notes in terms of how to go about that. I I never ever say to people you're shit out of luck ever. Yeah. Unless it's a seller's situation where it was their fault and they don't want to do anything. At that point, it's like I, there is nothing I personally can do. I cannot give you credit on the animal value, but I would refund the the import costs because that's not fair on the buyer. They didn't get what they were supposed to get, so mm-hmm. I will take that and just take it as a loss. Yeah, I just I do what I can. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I can imagine those situations though with like crypto or similar could be very <sighs> scary. It is, and that's a very high risk situation when it comes to any imports, mm-hmm. and that's why. I'm so vigilant on my testing and everything just to keep everybody safe. And yeah, I always use disposable containers like in a rack system or something. Everything gets tossed after and then new. Mm-hmm. So try to keep as sterile as possible, as clean as possible in regards to that. So that way, three months later, when I have another shipment happen, we don't have to worry. Like I even mm-hmm. get swab testing done after the fact, like when everything's dead gone not dead animals but like dead right. pathogens or whatever new new bins new setups like my vet comes back we do swab testing everywhere to make sure all is good and then i continue hmm. wow that's like that's a lot i mean okay i don't want to like discount what you're saying but i feel like that's a lot more work than i would have expected to yes. be put in but once again that's i think that my misconceptions of what importers did are being very quickly dispelled by talking to you and i didn't necessarily recognize my mindset towards uh importers that i had until i started speaking with you so well the problem your your thought process isn't wrong and that's the crappy part right it's Mm -hmm. very common for them to not care not to worry it is what it is you get what you buy kind of thing and you have to just assume the risks right and i always still tell people that and even in my terms of service like I straight up say it's not in my control of what happens. I mm-hmm. I can't catch everything that happens. It is what it is. Always do your quarantine practices, but I will do what I can to the best of my ability to help mm-hmm. protect you and the animals. Yeah, that's great. We are, we, I literally could listen to you talk about stories forever about the importing just because I think it's so fascinating, but I don't want to not highlight the incredible things you do in your own collection. So I really want to talk about, you You mentioned earlier, and then we kind of got more into like your work, but you mentioned that you were always had a fascination with the more obscure colubrids. And it's definitely continued into the collection that you keep now. And then I've also see like on your page and then even just behind you as we do this Zoom call, really elaborate enclosures that seem to try very hard to mimic natural environments. So I'd I'd love to just talk about that. Like, why do you keep your enclosures as elaborate as you do? And and how did you get started with that? Yeah. So that's a little interesting in its own, probably for some people. I used to do the whole, you know, I keep whatever species and the whole diversity that people Mm -hmm. already keep and they're all captive bred. Mm -hmm. And after a while, like when I bred the mangroves, I bred they're they're commonly captive bred and at that point it's like 
I felt there were some species that needed more attention. And I'm going to use the fire snakes as my classic example here. Right. I fell in love with a different species within that genus at a Tinley show. And that was mm-hmm. maybe about four years ago. And they kind of sparked it for me. But the fire snakes specifically, they get imported in to die. And I kept seeing this happen over and over again. Oh, I got this big, beautiful red snake. And then two months later, oh, it's dead. Mm-hmm. You know, and I wanted to know why. There's such a large, impressive species. Like, what's going on? Like, if they mm-hmm. could get this seven-foot-long snake from Suriname, what's going on here? Like, I, I couldn't understand it. Mm-hmm. And I made it a goal of mine to try and figure out what the situation is, what like what is the issue, and how do we curb it? It started a bit before then, but they really solidified my thoughts of the way I keep my animals is as natural as possible to keep them as stress-free as possible. Mm-hmm. And because I work with such obscure species, this just has to be the way they're kept in my mind. This is very controversial for many people. I don't sell on my collection. I very rarely do. And if I do, they're going to get my vet comes and make sure everything's okay. Mm-hmm. So my goal is to keep all the species that don't do well in captivity and to learn about them, figure out why, and then I can pass my knowledge on. Now, with that being, like with the fire snakes, I feel dirty saying this, but I don't quarantine them Mm -hmm. because the main trend I've noticed is when people go to quarantine them, they die. Mm -hmm. Within a few weeks, they're dead. That's it. And they never got past that point. So what I did with my very first one, which was Big Red, and unfortunately she recently passed away last week. Oh, I'm um, sorry. Uh, she was old though. She had like, me- like mega cataracts. So okay, yeah. It's, I'm glad it was that and not a husbandry issue. Yeah. Yeah, she was my first one. I got roughly two years ago, and. I put her straight into a very large naturalistic enclosure. I didn't see her for months. Mm-hmm. Like I never saw her. food just disappeared. And you mm-hmm. know what? That's okay. The food's disappearing. She's doing fine. That's all mm-hmm. that mattered. And being they were strict frog eaters, I had to find ways to get this huge snake weight on her and mm-hmm. not feed 20 frogs because that's expensive, you know? Yeah, just a bit. So. Yeah, and you can't feed them rodents. They just, they can't digest them. They just regurgitate mm-hmm. them and it's, it's not pretty. So what I did was I'd tie frogs to quail. And so oh, would, okay. <laughs> yeah, or I would make like little frog jackets around quail and she would eat them that way. But it still wasn't quite enough. And I ended up finding a way to make whole prey frog sausages. Mm-hmm. So, and she was eating those for a long time and... She, yeah, she lived, she was the longest lived fire snake in captivity until she passed away of old age. She, mm-hmm. she was two years. The longest prior to that I've ever seen was roughly six months. Wow. And ever, like, I've, uh, full disclosure, like, I brought a bunch in, majority never made it. But because mm-hmm. they were already emaciated, extremely dehydrated, there was always an issue with them. Right. But all the ones that came in in reasonable shape, they're still alive to this day. Mm-hmm. So they're doing really good. They're growing really well. I do not deworm until the snakes are of good, healthy status. Um, mm-hmm. Just because if you're trying to deworm a snake that's already stressed or sick, you're just introducing a, a toxin to the body, right? And that's just going to stress right. them out even more. And they're probably going to die. And I think that's another problem, I guess, people do without realizing what they're actually doing. 
I'm assuming you have a parrot. Sorry, or is that just a child upstairs. in your basement? No, okay, cool. It's a macaw. Uh, cool. Just wanted to make sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh, that was pretty loud. <laughs> yeah. So, like, I don't deworm until they settle. And mm-hmm. when I do deworm, I do it very cautiously. Instead of doing a full dose at once, I'd slow dose. Mm-hmm. And then I bring them up to the full dose so the body could get used to what I'm actually giving them. Boega, for example, you can't give them praziquantel, that kills them. So this way, when I start with a slow dose, I could see how they react to it. And if there's no adverse reaction that they can't recover from, mm-hmm. then I could go to the full dose. And that has worked really, really well for me. Yeah, like honestly, the, the fire stakes I have left, I think they're the proof that the way I'm keeping them is what works. And mm-hmm. I really, really hope I could get them going, get them breeding. It's, it's weird. And again, it's very controversial, but... If I don't do this, I feel there's no way to advance the species. Mm-hmm. If they're gonna, if they're gonna keep getting imported into dye, I want there to be some information out there for them, so at yeah. least they have a fighting chance, right? Mm-hmm. I think if you're doing it as ethically as possible, that's what you can ask for. Yeah, and that's just it. So I'd, I'd rather give them a chance versus, oh no, you're going into a sterile bin and you're probably gonna die, but I don't care. I'm, I'm not that person. Right. So in my newest challenge, I'm doing now are the Chinese false cobras. Hmm. <laughs> last time they're their own unique unique thing i don't know how i feel with them yet i haven't lost any other than like when i move i did lose a couple just because of the stress like they're mm-hmm. a snake you look at them the wrong way and they die unfortunately yeah. but out of all the ones i brought in they're all still alive otherwise in terms of husbandry they're all eating and they're doing much better than most do so i'm gonna call that a small win for now mm-hmm. I'll know in a year or so when I could be a little bit more comfortable with that. But same thing. They went straight into a naturalistic. They get fed their natural diet of frogs. And I don't look at them. Yeah. Like if I, I'll look at the enclosure, but I will not pull them out at all. Mm-hmm. I'll just wait till I see them. <laughs> so with these naturalistic enclosures that you're setting up, like looking at the ones behind you, cork bark, live plants and lights are you using uv are you like what's your heat source does that vary from species to species um yeah it does vary from species to species for the most part i only provide led and or uvb because most of the species i do keep are forest dwellers and the heat aspect they don't really need that specific basking spot but Mm -hmm. instead what i do is like the cork you could probably see the one right behind me here Mm -hmm. this it's really bright it's like it's Right. It's right underneath the light. So if they need a little bit more heat, they can move up towards the LED because it gets pretty toasty and then they mm-hmm. can thermoregulate that way or okay. they go to the other side where it's a lot cooler. Okay. Very cool. So yeah. Very cool. Well, this has been such a pleasure to talk with you. That really kind of wraps up most of my questions. Is there anything else that you wanted to touch on before we end? I think that's basically everything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the very last questions I have for you, I ask everyone um, I talk to is if a younger girl approached you and said that she wanted to get into the hobby or or maybe start working with these more unique species, what advice would you have for her? Oh, start with what you love and not what people tell you to keep. Mm -hmm. That to me is so important and to research. Don't just buy it on impulse, look into their environments and do what you can for the betterment of the animal. If you get a fish or if you get a bird, you don't just put it in a tiny box. You give the enrichment of needs. Like with a bird, you give it toys. Do the same thing with the snake. Like it might not be toys, but give it something to 
you know, be enriched by whether it's climbing, digging, do what you feel would make yourself happy if you're in the same situation. Mm -hmm. Like if you're, if you have a bedroom, you want stuff in it, right? Like you want to have your toys and whatever, and just put yourself into that mentality. Like, yes, they're reptiles, but what harm is it? There is no harm in doing that. You're better to give something versus not. I've actually had several people approach me and I will take them under my wing per se to help guide them in terms of the best husbandry possible. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Ashley. This has been such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank God we finally got it on the calendar. (laughs) If people do want to ask you more about what you do, maybe like ask questions about what's currently available, where can they find you? The best way to contact me is my personal Facebook page under Ashley Dazan. I do have my business page However, that's a strictly business. It just It's best to contact me from my personal. Okay, awesome. Uh, once again, thanks so much. I really, really no appreciated problem. this. I learned a ton. Mm-hmm. You really changed my uh, outlook on importers. And I appreciated that because I didn't even recognize the outlook I had. So thank you. Get in touch. And as always, this is your host, Dominique of DeFalco Reptiles. You can follow me on Facebook and Instagram at DeFalco Reptiles. And you can follow the podcast at Modern Medusa Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. So thanks so much. And we'll talk to you next week. Have a good one. Thanks for listening. 